Cornerstone. How are you today? Yeah? Doing okay? Um, I am a little bit tired, to be totally honest, and, um, um, but that, that just happens when life, hello Derek, it's super good to see, it's, I have a twin kind of over here, we're not related, but it's like looking in a mirror over here, oddly. Could you stand up for just a second? That would be awesome, thank you very much, cool. Um, yeah, it's weird, right, because when, when you, I kind of look like Howie Mandel and Voldemort had a baby, um, honestly, and so it's just kind of a weird thing that happens, but um, you can see how tired I am. The sermon's already starting off a little bit weird. I'm tired because we have a bad mattress, though, at home. Um, any of you had a bad mattress before? You know exactly what I'm talking about. We actually went mattress shopping recently, which is that not the most awkward experience ever? You walk into a room with a sea of beds, and in public, I have to crawl into bed with, with my spouse with all sorts of other people around, like doing the exact same thing. It is, it's just weird. And so you, you crawl into bed, and what makes it even more weird is it would be one thing if it was just you and your wife or whatever, you and your husband, and you, you get into bed and you settle in. You, what do you think? And I don't know, well, let's try another one. But you've always got the guy, right, the, the sales guy, like hovering over you while you're looking. So you crawl in and they're like, what do you think about that one? Is that firm enough for you? Is that good? You like him a little bit softer? I like him a little bit softer. What about you? And it's so odd. What we were noticing, he was following us the entire way uh, along. And as, as we were going from bed to bed, his passion and his excitement level for the bed that we were looking at increased as the cost of the bed increased. I'm smart. But we just kept going along down the line, and we're starting to get up into that range that, like, I don't know who buys these beds. This is like a president's bed or something. And I'm like, Anna, we don't even need, we should not even try. Like, don't even try it, because it's just going to ruin everything else we've, we've looked at so far. But the guy was so excited about it and so connected with us and just helping us all along the way. And we get to this one bed, and I've seen the price tag already. There's no, it costs more than a house. I can't afford this. And I, like, I don't even want to try it. And Anna's like, give it a shot. So I went, okay. I laid down in this bed, you guys. The heavens opened and angels began to sing. And I'm like, this is the most amazing thing that I've ever just laid down on, even got close to. This is phenomenal. And the guy, the sales guy, his eyes just lit up in this big, huge grin. And he, he told us every facet about this mattress. I mean, he knew every little detail. And I'm like, I believe you. I believe you. It's phenomenal. And then, I'm not making this up, he got in to bed with us. <laughs> that is not right, y'all. We're just trying to make a purchase, and he, he's spooning in between. This is not right. <laughs> the three of us are laying in the bed. Now I don't even want to, I don't want to move. Like, he's like, what do you think? I'm, it's good. It's nice. It's nice. What do you think, honey? And he, it's super awkward. But I believed him because he was ready to dive in there with us. I mean, he had that much belief in that mattress that we, he was like, man, I, I'll dive in there with you. I'll sleep in the bed next six months for you to test it out for you. When you get home, we deliver it, and I sleep in it for you. That's awesome. Cool. I don't want you to ever come near me again. That's super weird. There's two pieces 
to something, when somebody's trying to sell you on something, or somebody's trying to direct you in some way, I always feel like there's two pieces. There's the what, and there's the who. There is like what they're trying to sell me, in this case, a mattress, and and then there's the who. Who is selling me this? Because I could lay down on the mattress and go, this is really good. And I got to know this guy quite well, thank you very much. And he seemed pretty trustworthy. You put those two things together, the who and the what, and I go, I think I could buy into this. I think I've got faith in it. How much more so when it comes to our faith in God? How much more so when it comes to living out the life that God's called us to live? We have got a a trustworthy who. It's the God of the universe. And then he has given us his promises, his word. And if you link up this trustworthy God with these trustworthy promises, I think, I believe that that has the opportunity to really increase our faith in his word and in him. Because over time you find that he, he is trustworthy and that the object of our faith actually holds water. It's actually, uh, it is, you can actually bank on it. If I couldn't trust him or I couldn't trust his word, then forget about it. And we're going to talk about faith today. And we're looking at one of the most foundational chapters in Scripture out of Hebrews chapter 11. If you've got your Bible, open up to this, this book of Hebrews that we've been in for the last several weeks. And this is that chapter called the Hall of Faith. And you get some amazing pictures of what a life of faith actually looks like. And it's a saving faith. It's a faith that doesn't just get you through the end of the week, but it's a faith that gets you through your whole life. In fact, that's one of the evidences, it's one of the markers of of saving faith, is your ability to press on. It's your ability to go the distance. It's what we ended with last week in chapter 10, that great verse at the end of chapter 10, that just says, we're not belonging to the people who shrink back and are destroyed. But to follow Jesus, we're of the people who have faith and are saved. And so what does this life of faith really look like? What what does a faith look like for real that goes the distance, that doesn't just get us through the week but gets us through the end of our life, and leaves a legacy for the lives behind us. Enter Hebrews chapter 11. Right at verse one through three, you get an amazing definition of faith. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. In other words, the very kind of heartbeat of faith, the hinge point of faith, what a life of faith really is about is future hope, not just present 
circumstances. A life of faith is anchored into hope in the future about what God's promised, not necessarily present reality even, or present circumstances. And then he goes on to unpack lives that lived that out, lives that showed that they were able to not just look at their present circumstances or present reality, but they were able to press on to future. Faith is always future-focused, future-oriented. It's hope toward this future that you can't even necessarily see yet. You believe that more than you believe what's right in front of your face. You get to a moment where life can get wrapped around you and it's like blinders on with our circumstances and our reality. But faith says, I I can lift my eyes up above that to see beyond my reality, beyond my circumstances to the future and to the promises of God and and the person of God and what he's doing and what he's preparing. That's what faith's all about. And he gives some amazing examples in this entire chapter of people who live that sort of life. He talks about a guy named Noah who gets this word from God to go build a boat, not just any boat, but this ark, this tremendously huge thing, because God says there's a flood that's coming that's gonna wipe out the land. And you need to build a boat, and you need to get all these animals on board with you. You can't tell me that was an easy moment for this guy. I mean, he's like 500 years old when he gets this word. This is not the age to start a do-it-yourself project of epic proportions. You talk about the faith that he must have had at that moment. I mean, that must have seemed like the most ridiculous thing ever. And yet, he goes about building this ark. You get a picture of a guy named Abraham who gets word from God. You need to go to this land that I've promised you. Well, where is it? Don't worry about that. You just need to go. I'll tell you later where you're headed. Wait, what? I'm gonna make you the father of many nations. Okay, wait, wait, hold on a second. I don't have any kids. My wife is way past the age, Sarah, of having children. And Sarah herself, probably hearing those words, God, I'm going to use you to be the seed of all of these nations. What? What are you talking about? Hello, do you know how old I am? And yet each of them in their own way, they realized who was giving them this word. They then evaluated the word. It didn't mean that they didn't wrestle with it or question it, but eventually they pushed past it enough to move Their faith in who and what was so strong that it moved them to action. Those are the three steps. You get the who, you get the what, and then you gotta move. That's what faith is all about. And he unpacks that here, story after story, person after person in the Old Testament who lived out these lives of faith. And it's the Hebrews that were wrestling in their own faith because they had come out of Judaism into Christianity. They'd walked away from their old belief and their old religion to follow Jesus. And they were tempted to go back to their old religion. They were tempted to, to blend what they liked about Christianity with what they were comfortable with in their old religion. And the author of Hebrews is just going, you can't do that. 
don't revert back and don't blend. You need to elevate your perspective on who Jesus is and what he's done. When you remember, when you understand who he is and what he has said, that's the start of faith. And the more that you wrestle with that, the more you understand that, it's gonna, it should motivate you to action. And look at what happens. All these people that he starts to unpack these lives of faith, verse 13, this is interesting. It says, all these people were still living by faith when they died. That's such a good picture. They didn't just make it to the end of the week, they made it to the end of their lives. It didn't mean that they lived every week perfectly. It didn't mean it, was a roller, it wasn't a roller coaster. But it meant that they, when they fell, they kept getting back up. When circumstances and reality seemed so pressing right in their face, they, they lifted their eyes up and they saw the future. They saw the hope. They saw the one who was calling them on. And they kept moving. But this is even more interesting. It says, they did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. Some of them didn't see the full fruit or the full glory or the fullness in general of what it was that they were pursuing. They just got a taste of it. They got a little piece of it. Does that mean that you could live a life of faith and you yourself never fully realize all of the things that we're talking about? Yep. This side of heaven, that's kind of the way that things roll. You may go hard after God and you may work the land that's incredibly difficult in your life or the lives of people around you and you yourself may never see a whole lot of the fruit, but your kids might. Their kids might, their kids' kids might. And so you're not laboring in vain, your faith isn't in vain. What you're doing now is gonna better set up generations to follow you. He goes on and says, and they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show they're looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had an opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. In other words, you guys, this life of faith is where God's word and your inner response collide. A life of faith, faith in general for you, is where the promises of God and the word of God collide with your response internally, with your response in your heart. It starts this faith journey with promises of God. Abraham, Sarah, Noah, all the people unpacked here, it all started, their life of faith started with a word from the Lord. It started with the promise of God. Build a boat. Go to a land I'm going to tell you about later. Bear children even though you're past age. And they, they, they got these words. They got the word from, from the Lord. And, and you guys, we've got these amazing words now in Scripture. And so for us, our journey of faith really starts with this 
this word right here. If we don't know what he's promised, if we don't know what his words are, no wonder our faith is weak or lacking. We don't even know what he's called us to or what he's promising to do. We may understand a little bit of the who, and we may understand a little bit of the what, but probably not enough to bolster our faith enough to carry us on. It starts with a word from God. You think about Jesus himself and his words. I mean, Jesus claims to be God. That's a pretty strong claim. He claims that he's going to die and then rise again three days later, conquering sin and conquering death, proving that he is who he said he was, that he is God. That's a huge claim. If that statement holds water, then maybe that encourages our faith. If there's some evidence to it, if there's something that backs that up, man, that just bolsters our faith even more. But if it doesn't, then we got a whole other problem. I drove past a Walgreens on Easter morning this year, and outside Walgreens there was a sign that said, Walgreens, your one-stop, all-you-need Easter headquarters. Uh-uh. I beg to differ. I don't think that Walgreens has all that I need as it pertains to what Easter is about. The last time I checked, Walgreens didn't die for my sins. They may have what I needed that day for to refill a prescription or go buy some chocolate ho-hos, but they do not have salvation there. If Easter is just about rabbits that lay eggs, then maybe that's my one-stop Easter headquarters. They make a claim that if I press on, it falls apart completely. I don't need to have faith in Walgreens as my Easter headquarters. Jesus, on the other hand, he makes a claim. I am God. I'm going to rise again from the dead, conquering sin, conquering death to be alive in you. I am God. I am the only way to the Father. Nobody gets to the Father except through me. If that claim stands, okay. If it doesn't, we got to wrestle with it. People, a lot of people think that, that, that that's a lie, that Jesus was actually lying about being God, that he wasn't God, he was just lying about it. The problem with that is that as he continued to, in their version, lie about being God, eventually he gets arrested for that claim, and they decide that he has committed a crime called blasphemy, and that crime deserves punishment, and the punishment that that crime deserved in their day was death. And the worst punishment for death in that day was, was crucifixion. And so his lie has led him to be crucified. It's led him to a place where he's going to have spikes driven through his wrist and through his feet, nailed to a cross, cross uprighted, shoulders separated from their sockets as the cross falls into place, pierced through the heart by a Roman soldier, taken down, wrapped up in cloths that harden and put in a tomb and rock rolled in front of it and sealed shut. That's where his lie took him. You guys, if that's you, if that's me, I don't know why you would lie about that if that's where it's going to lead. Maybe you start out going, oh, I just want to be you know, popular or whatever and have people follow me and 
make them think I can do cool stuff. And we can't explain the miracles if he's not God, but we'll just put that on the shelf for a moment. But he's just lying about being God. The moment that you come to me and say, hey, if you keep talking like that, I'm going to kill you. We are going to crucify you. I would go, <laughs> kidding. <laughs> I was just joking. I just wanted to fake people out and get a big following. And Okay, I, I'm kidding. I was just pretending. I wouldn't die for a lie. Some people say, okay, well, maybe he wasn't lying. Maybe he was crazy. Maybe Jesus Christ was an absolute crazy wacko, and he thought he was God. Again, we can't explain the miracles. Again, we can't really explain why those closest to him didn't see him that way. But then why do psychologists today say that if you just followed the teachings of Jesus, if you just did what he said, they say you would be mentally and emotionally stable? How does a crazy person go around teaching everybody else how to be mentally and emotionally stable? Not likely. So if he wasn't lying and he wasn't crazy, then maybe he is who he said he was. Maybe he is God. But then this raising from the dead thing, I mean, how in the world can we put our faith in something as ludicrous as that? I mean, that's so outside of reality. That just doesn't happen. People go, okay, here's what happened. Jesus had a twin brother. One died on the cross, and the other one went around making appearances after the fact. Really, that's, people have that theory. Some people say this is what happened. The morning that the disciples go to the tomb, they find that it's empty. Scripture records that the claws that Jesus is wrapped in are folded up off to the side. Tomb is empty. He's not there. This is what some people say. They say that the disciples actually went to the wrong tomb. They showed up and they're like, empty tomb. Jesus is God. He did rise from the dead. We were right. This validates what Jesus was saying all along. But you guys, if Jesus had, had, had that, that's the way it rolled, if he didn't, if he wasn't God and they had just gone to the wrong tomb, all the Roman soldiers would have had to do was go, no, you idiots. Here he is. And they roll the right tomb open. They find dead Jesus still laying there. And they go, look, he's right here. And Christianity would have been stopped dead in its tracks and none of us would be sitting here today. They, they didn't go to the wrong tomb. Other people say Jesus wasn't God. And when he was up on the cross, he didn't actually die. He just fainted. He just passed out. It's, qual it's called the swoon theory. That he's up there on the cross. He's been beaten. He's been mocked. He's been nailed to a cross, and he's hanging up there, and at some point he goes, whew, I'm getting a little lightheaded. <sighs> and he faints. A Roman soldier pierces him through the heart. Scripture says that blood and water come out. It's a classic sign you've pierced the pericardium. It's a fluid protective sac around your heart. Final way to make sure the Roman soldier knows that the person up there is actually dead, but we're gonna forego that for a moment. They take him down. They wrap him up in this mummy-like cloth, spices, it hardens, it gets very heavy. They put him inside of a tomb. They roll a rock in front, seal it shut, post Roman soldiers out front of it, and give him instructions to defend that place to the death. At some point, though, Jesus is inside the tomb, and he just wakes up. Whew, I must have passed out. <laughs> and then he breaks out of the mummy wrap, rolls the rock aside, overpowers the Roman soldiers, and then skips away. Woohoo! I fooled everybody. Come on. 
My favorite theory, though, is one that says, here's actually what happened. This is what happened. In the middle of the night over the weekend, the disciples came in and they stole the body. So picture it. Roman soldiers parked out front. They are trained to defend a six-foot area around them to the death. They've been given the word, if anything happens to this body inside of here, you yourself as the soldier will be killed. They have a lot of invested interest to make sure that nothing happens to this body. Roman, the, the Roman soldiers are posted there. It's the middle of the night. The disciples crawl up on the hillside over, and they look over. They're like, there it is. You see it? Okay. Those guys look scary. They're big. I can smell them from here. They're nasty. Let's go. Are you ready? John, you jump on the big ugly one. Pete, you go after that guy there. Break. And they go for it. And these tax collectors and fisher dudes swarm in, overpower the Roman soldiers, roll the rock aside, rush in. You got to get the body and get out quick. And one of them, they're just about to grab the body, and one of them goes, <clears throat> wait a minute. <laughs> you don't know how they talk. Wait a minute. Let's steal the body naked. Ew. That's what they would have had to do, because Scripture records that the claws that Jesus was wrapped in are folded up off to the side. So they're like, let's go in. Oh, that's a great idea. Let's steal it naked. Unwrap it. Naked Jesus, here we go. It's absolutely ludicrous, especially when you start to realize that all but one of those disciples will go on to be killed for their belief in Jesus Christ. By most accounts, tradition tells us that Peter was crucified upside down for his belief in Jesus by his own choosing because he didn't consider himself worthy to be crucified in the same manner as his Savior. So it's one thing for Jesus to die for a lie. But do you think all these disciples, them knowing that if he didn't rise from the dead that he's not God, he's just some teacher, He's just a nice guy. Do you think that they would all then go on to die for a lie? Not likely. And so Jesus' words, backed with his life, much less the life of God himself, him being God himself, you put those two things together and it strengthens my faith in big, huge ways. Does it mean I have all my questions answered? No. Does it mean I understand my circumstances or my reality every single day? No but I start to understand God's character and I understand God's word and those things together, I go, hmm. This builds some confidence for my faith. It strengthens my faith, it increases my faith. But I take these words from God, these promises from God, and then I've got this inner heart response that I need to do something with. You hit that moment where in your heart, in your mind, you got a choice to make. You think that Noah had a choice to make? Build an ark and get animals on board. What? Go to the land I'm gonna tell you. You'll figure out where later. Huh? You are gonna have children even though you are super old. <laughs> no way. But the inner response in that moment, you're wrestling with your faith. The wrestle isn't bad, you guys. It's how you come out of it on the other side. And I think all of them wrestled with that. But they hit a moment where they go, okay, that's weird. But 
okay. And I think that's that heart in a response of faith. It's to go, okay, I hear your word, and that's really weird. You're calling me on to do something strange. You're calling me to believe something that's a little bit weird. You're calling me to trust in something I can't totally see or trust. It's not uber tangible. It's kind of strange. It's weird, but okay. And see, that's the last step. I think a life of faith, it doesn't just start with God's word and promises. It's not just an internal heart response. A life of faith always leads to an external action. A real life of faith always leads to an outer movement, an outer step that you're going to take. If you look, as he continues to unpack these stories, look at verse 32 and on. This is one of those amazing chunks of scripture. Look at the steps that these people took of action because of their faith. Verse 32, what more shall I say? I don't have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured and refused to be released so they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated, and the world was not worthy of them. When they got who God was and what he was calling them to, it led them to action. People a lot closer to the situation than you or I experienced the way God was moving. And then even more so, those that got to see Je Jesus live and walk amongst the earth. So much so that that they, they thought their faith was worth laying down their life for. Could it explain absolutely everything? No. But it could it give them strength to lift their eyes above to see future, not just for themselves, but for other people. A life of faith always leads to action. A guy I had a brief moment with, follower of Jesus, sociologist, and professor. He lives on the East Coast. He needed to go do some work in Hawaii. He flew all across our state's lands in Hawaii. He wakes up in the middle of the night. It's three in the morning, and he's starving to death. The time change has thrown him all off. But he's in Honolulu, and he's starving, and he needs to get up and find something to eat. But he doesn't know where to go. He starts wandering the streets of Honolulu early, early in the morning. The only place that he can find open is this greasy diner. And he doesn't even really want to go in, but he doesn't have any choice. He walks through the door of this diner, and as he walks in, a little bell rings as he goes inside. There's nobody in there. And he sits down at a stool in front of the counter, and he puts his elbow on the counter, and his arm sticks to it. It's so gross in there. Just then, a big, huge guy comes out of the kitchen area. 
the cook comes out, ginormous human being, and he's wearing this apron that had been white at some point, but is now stained with all sorts of food and chunks of dead animals hanging off of him. It was gross. And he walks out and he throws a menu down in front of Tony and he goes, what can I get you? And Tony was afraid to even open the menu because he was sure something extraterrestrial was going to crawl right out of it. He looks around for a moment and there's a pile of donuts on a tray at the end of the counter and Tony just says, I'll, I'll just take a donut. And the guy didn't use wax paper or tongs. He took his bare hand, he wiped it across some dead animal on his apron and, and then grabbed the donut with his bare hand and slapped it down on the menu right in front of Tony. He goes, here you go. Just then the bell rings behind. Tony looks over his shoulder and sees two women come in and sit down on either side of him, one on one stool, one on the other. And it takes him a matter of 30 seconds before he realizes that these are both prostitutes. And now Preacher Boy is stuck in a diner between two prostitutes at three o'clock in the morning. Pretty awkward situation. And they start to have a conversation across Tony like he's not even there. They're chit-chatting for a little while and then one of them, Agnes, turns to the other and says, hey, guess what, tomorrow's my birthday. And the other one goes, so? What do I care? I don't care if tomorrow's your birthday. And Agnes goes, I, I, know, you, I know you wouldn't care. I'm just talking about it. Nobody's ever cared that it's my birthday. I have never had a birthday in my entire life that somebody's thrown a party for. I'm gonna be 30 tomorrow. Nobody has ever cared. I know you don't care. I'm just chit-chatting. Jeez, let me go. They chit-chat a little bit more. And the more that they talk, Tony's heart is starting to break for these two ladies. And the faith that he has in God and knowing God the way that Tony does, that, that, that God's got a heart for these people, it starts to stir in his mind and in his heart. And he's wondering maybe if he should do something about it, that it's leading him to some sort of action. And yet he's coming up with all sorts of excuses about why not. Pretty soon they get up and they leave. And Tony, Tony turns to the, the cook and he goes, hey, those two, they come in here about every night? Yep, every single night. It sounds like one of their birthdays is tomorrow. Yeah, Agnes's birthday. Tony goes, I got a weird idea. What do you say tomorrow night we throw a birthday party, surprise one, for Agnes right here in the diner? What do you say? And the cook goes, oh, that's a great idea. He gets on the phone with his wife and he goes, hey, there's a guy in here who wants to throw a birthday party for Agnes. Let's get the word out on the street. And he goes, I'll, I'll bake the cake, I'll bake the cake. And Tony's like, oh, okay, well, whatever. I guess you got to. <laughs> Tony says, I'll handle all the decorations. I'll show up a little bit early tomorrow night. We'll decorate this place out. You get the word out, you get the food, and, and, and I'll handle decorations. Sure enough, they, they did it. The next night, Tony has that place decorated like crazy. There's banners, there's balloons, there's streamers, there's a big sign that says, happy birthday, Agnes, hanging over the side over here. And they'd got the word out on the street so well, in fact, that just about a half hour before the women normally show up, this place is packed full of people, but not just any people. This particular night, it's packed full of about 150 other prostitutes. And Tony. Now it's even more awkward. And they're all huddled in the corner, kind of waiting to see you. Is she coming? Is she here yet? They got the lights turned down a little bit lower than normal. And they're looking down the street, waiting for Agnes and her friend to come. And pretty soon they can see them coming down the walkway. And they're getting all excited. Shh, shh, be quiet, be quiet. Here, here they come. Here she comes. And they open the door. And the little bell rings as they open the door. 
and 150 prostitutes and Tony step up at the same time and they go, surprise! And Agnes just starts bawling. Tears just start rushing down this poor woman's face. And the cook comes out of the back carrying the cake going, blow out the candles, Agnes, blow out the candles, happy birthday to you, happy, sets it down, cut the cake, Agnes, cut the cake. And tears coming down her face, she can barely blow out the candles. She's just about to cut the cake and she goes, I just have a favor to ask. I'm just wondering, um, before I cut the cake, my mom lives right down the street, just a couple of blocks. She's never going to believe that I've got friends that care enough to do something like this. Would you mind if I just take the cake down to her and show her? She's never going to believe it. Because the reality is, I don't think she's ever had a birthday either. And I'm wondering maybe if I could just give her the first piece of cake. And they look at each other and Tony says, of course, go for it. And so Agnes walks out down the street with the cake. And they're all left there looking at each other. And one of the prostitutes goes, what do we do now? And Tony just goes, I don't know. Maybe we ought to pray. And there at 3.30 in the morning at a greasy diner in the middle of Honolulu, Tony led a prayer meeting with 150 prostitutes. Just seemed like the right thing to do at the time. And as he finished, he finished praying and the cook said, hey, Tony, you didn't tell me you were a preacher. And Tony said, yeah. He said, well, what kind of church do you preach at? In the perfect way, perfect timing, Tony said, I, I preach at the kind of church that throws birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning. <laughs> and the cook said, no, you don't, because I would go to a church like that. <laughs> you guys, wouldn't we all, wouldn't we all go to a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning? I mean, that's the church that Jesus died to create. That's a church that's filled with people who are filled with faith. It's a church that's filled with people that have figured out who Jesus is. They've figured out the word that he's proclaimed, not just for us, but for all people. And we're willing to do whatever it takes to all people that need him and need his promises. That we'd allow him to stir our hearts, that we'd go, okay, I don't get these circumstances. I don't think this is going to be comfortable. I don't think this is going to be fair. I don't think this is going to be easy. It's going to be kind of dirty. It's going to be kind of messy. It's going to be totally difficult, but it'll never be boring. And a life of faith may be a lot of things, but it is never, ever boring. And you start to live faith like this. And it'll light this church on more fire than it is right now. It'll light this community on fire like you couldn't possibly imagine. It'll transform this state and it'll transform this world as we get he who promised is faithful. So let's go live like it. Let's pray. And so, Father, we just thank you so much for who you are. That our faith journey just starts there. It starts with you. It ends with you. It's all for you. 
I thank you for these amazing brothers and sisters in this church, this family that you have, have given here. But I pray that you would continue and increase our faith. Thank you for the example of the lives of faith that we see in scripture and the lives of faith that are being lived out in this amazing church right here and right now. I thank you for your word, that hearing the word, as Romans 10 says, is what gives us faith. But God, take that faith in us and grow it so that it doesn't just stay internal, but that it leads to something external in our action. Allow us to get excited about sharing our faith with people around us and living it out with the people around us. God, we thank you for your son and the sacrifice that he made and just what the truth of that does to encourage our very faith. Lord, we love you. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name.